everyone, and welcome back to the So OCD podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Nunnery, and if this is your first time joining me, this show is all about learning to live and thrive with obsessive compulsive disorder. In today's episode, I get the very great privilege of introducing you guys to my friend, Peyton Garland. Peyton and I got to know each other a couple of years ago because our husbands used to work together. We kind of got connected over writing at first and then discovered, hey, we both have obsessive compulsive disorder. So she has been an incredible friend to me, and I think we've both brought some valuable resources to this friendship to help one another as we learn how to live and be healthy with OCD. Peyton is an author who has penned a children's book and is now working on a historical crime novel. And let me tell you guys, I read the first page and I am hooked. I can't wait to read more of it. And I know that you guys are going to love this woman as much as I do. I hope you'll listen to our conversation, maybe find some common ground with us or learn how to support someone you know and love with this common, but very misunderstood disorder. Thank you for joining us today. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with author Peyton Garland. given everybody a little bit of a backstory about you a little bit how we met you just go ahead and tell me a little bit about yourself yeah okay so I'm Peyton Garland and I live about 30 minutes north of Atlanta in Roswell Georgia with my husband Josh and our two furry children Alfie and Daisy I'm a freelance writer and editor and I also have clinical OCD so that's yay (laughs) I am um so Give me a little bit of your OCD story, if you don't mind, telling us a little bit about that, how you kind of first realized, or, you know, maybe how it showed up in your childhood and when you first really discovered like, oh, this is actually, I think, a mental health disorder that I have. Yeah. So, um, I found out in the summer of 2018 that I had intrusive thought, clinical OCD, all the big words. Um, so then I started looking back over my life and I was able to pinpoint where it was showing up and my whole yeah. life. I thought I was normal. Like I had a, a full blown conversation with Josh two days ago about, I had no idea people didn't count how many times they put deodorant on one arm to make sure it lined up on the other arm. So every oh, morning, wow. so just basic things that I've been doing since I was little, I didn't like to, if I walked from my bed to the door, my left leg and my right leg both had to take the same number of steps. Yeah. It showed up. <laughs> Symmetry. Um, I would get in trouble as a child when I was learning to write my letters because I would erase so many times I'd burn a hole through the paper. And so when really? I, yeah. So little things like that where I just, people labeled it, Oh, you're just a perfectionist. And I thought, mm-hmm. okay. So a few years after that was probably, when I was about five or six, like the symmetry thing and having to have everything line up just right. But two or three years after that, I had a classmate. He was, well, he was two years older than me. He passed away from complications with, I believe, the flu or pneumonia. But all I knew is when people went to the hospital, it was because they were sick. And I understood that sick people were sick because they had germs. Mm. And so I thought where, you know, someone my age had died, and I naturally assumed that was from germs. And so around 10, it was full-blown germ OCD. Like I... I gave myself eczema by the age of 10 that they said was irreversible. I'd use so much Dermax, like alcohol on my skin. I destroyed my skin. Um, So that was about 10 or 11. And it just comes in phases. Like it it just knows OCD is almost like it knows what's going to happen. It's, Mm -hmm. it's right behind you, like breathing down your back, but it 
10 steps ahead of you. It knows what's coming in life and it's just going to pit that against you. So probably two or three years after the germ thing, and it doesn't really leave. So I'm carrying all of this with me, the symmetry thing. I'm carrying the germ thing with me about 13 or 14. Um, I was in a very strict Southern Baptist church um, where I wasn't allowed to wear pants. If it wasn't KJV, it wasn't the Bible lots of staunch rules that weren't really gospel driven. And from there, I definitely developed some religious OCD where I, I totally lost sight of who God is as a whole. He, he was just a rule maker and he was just checking off every time I did something wrong. Yeah. And so after that, I carried that with me probably through most of high school. Um, but once I got into college and I kind of, I could pick my own church and branch out from the pressure that I felt every Sunday, that that eased a little bit. I still struggle with it. But I met my wonderful husband, and for the first time in my life, I was like, oh, someone is actually sexually attractive. Like, what is this? <laughs> like, is it cool? Um, we, we did, you know, the what the church calls the good girl thing. I didn't have sex until I was married. Um, but after you have sex and you know what it is, then you're afraid, well, I love my husband so much, but what if, what if all of these thoughts that I've had because I'm intimate with my husband, what if I place them on another guy and that's wrong? Mm. And so then, then it turns into sex OCD because anytime I'm near another guy, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't need to think anything bad. I need to make sure my hands are right by my side. So they're not touching anything. Um, so I, I will panic if I'm near a man, I don't even have to be attracted to him. It could be a 65 year old man and I'm in full panic mode. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how OCD transitions how it shifts over the course of your life based on whatever it is that you're dealing with in that moment right so some of the things I want to touch on a couple of things that you talked about so as a kid I would drive in the car with my family and I still do this now and I would like squeeze my toes or press my toes down when we would like pass a driveway so the 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 lawn or the space between a driveway or a road I would like press my toes down and then lift them up again at a driveway and then press them back down and then lift them up again. Like it, it was this weird thing. And I never thought anything about it. It was just something I did because it wasn't yeah. visible. Right. And then I, I do this as part of this is the perfectionist mindset too. So you never really know how much of it is just your personality and wanting things to be a particular way and how much of it is actually um, an obsession you know, I find myself always correcting things around my house, just walking, I'll walk past something and I see it and I pick it up and I have to put it away. It's sort of a, it's just a constant restlessness. And that's really hard because the world is really messy. And so when I got older and when my kids came along and, you know, it's automatic that your mothering instincts sort of kick in. And I know that that's different for everybody in terms of how they feel um, as a new mom because of all the hormones and stuff. But in general, you have this mothering instinct that kicks in and your brain is in high gear of like, I've got to protect them. And because of all the things we've seen in the world that are so terrible, our brain can pull that and go, oh my God, what if that happened to my kid? And then it goes, what if I did that? Yeah. Oh my God, what if I did that? And so you change their diaper and you go, oh, where are my hands? Let me make sure my, like what you were talking about, you know, let me make sure my hands are every, you know, in the right spot. And, and you know, that I'm, I'm guarding against all of those possible things that could happen, but you know, they're not going to happen, right? They're not going to happen. And, and that's, what's so interesting. I think about having OCD is that we are actually on high alert all the time 
trying to make sure that bad things don't happen, trying to care for the world around us, trying to fix everything we see that could possibly go wrong. And it's because we love so deeply. And what's so horrifying about it is that your brain says, because you care so much, you need to be afraid that you'll be a part of the problem. Right. Right. Um, and it, and I've had the religious OCD too. I've never had the, uh, it's never manifested in terms of like cleaning before, but I have realized that in the last couple of years, I cannot stand to do anything with my hands after I've eaten. I have to go wash them. Like if I've had anything and there might be like food residue on my hands or oil or anything, I have to go wash them when I'm done. It's just, it's, it's fascinating how OCD can, it does, it goes after the things that you love the most, right? It goes after whatever is most important to you in that moment. And if it's your relationship with God, if it's your children, if it's your marriage, you know, if it's your work, whatever, it's going to, your brain's going to go, well, that matters. Let's protect it (laughs) at all costs, right? You clearly, you kind of covered some of the subtypes of OCD that you struggle with. Tell me what that's like for you when you're out in public, by yourself and, and with your husband, what is that like for you right now with the way that it's manifesting? I say it all the time. Like, I don't know how you put up with me, especially in public. Because I, I go into a panic mode. He, he was talking about this actually last night. He's noticed if we're out to dinner with friends, like another couple, if I am just magically placed by the other male, he's noticed I will scoot my chair or I'll shift my body. Like I am literally angling my body to be away from that other person. So there's no way I, I can't be an arm's distance. If I'm not an arm's or legs distance, I can't touch you. I can't be close enough to you to do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, I, my jawbone is tight all the time. I have my teeth clenched all the time. My shoulders hurt all the time. I, I physically feel the stress of being in public because I, I just like I can't oh. move my. I'm terrified to turn corners because I could bump into somebody and be in their personal space. Mm-hmm. If I hear sneeze or cough, I'm not going anywhere near that aisle in the grocery store. I'm just not. I do a lot of the, the sort of, it's the reassurance seeking, right? It's, it's doing the compulsion, which is what you're doing, right? You're doing compulsions. You're keeping your body away. You're keeping yourself at arm's length so that that's the only way you can trust that you're not going to do anything wrong, right? Which is a compulsion trying to reduce your anxiety. And, and I've done that before too, where I will do similar things. I'll turn my body or I'll avoid something or (laughs) for a couple of years, I was terrified that I was going to randomly say something terrible in public and, and not, not something that I meant, but just (laughs) that I would say something awful, right. That I would just suddenly, I mean, I don't mind cussing, (laughs) but that I would say something hurtful to someone or that I would call someone a name or that I would be derogatory or, you know, just whatever. And all of that comes from stuff that I would hear in the news, right? If you hear somebody that you really admire and suddenly then you find out that they use the N word and you're so upset that they've done something like that. And then your OCD says, well, what if you said something like that? And you think I would never say something like that, but then it's in your head. And so then you walk around and I, what I would do is I would keep my tongue touching the roof of my mouth so that whenever I would leave a store or whenever I would leave whatever, wherever I was at in that moment, I could say to myself, I know I didn't say anything because my tongue was touching the roof of my mouth the whole time. And so much of OCD, I think is, it's just not visible, right? We do those things. Nobody else knows that we're doing them. 
we just look totally normal, but they have no idea that inside we're thinking, don't mess up. Don't do something bad. Don't say something bad. Oh my gosh. You know, if, if I do that, or if I say that, then my family's going to die. You know, if I don't walk these certain amount of steps, then I'm going to get in a car accident. Or if I don't, if I don't do A, B or C, I'm going to lose complete control of who I am, who I've always been. My counselor always says to me, Wendy, your default setting is good. You're not going to suddenly act outside of your character. You're not, um, you know, you have an understanding of who we are, of where you are right now, of who you are. You don't have schizophrenia. You know, you don't have hallucinations. You know what year it is. Like you are present. You are here and you know all of these things. And so you're not going to suddenly just lose control and act in a way that's contrary to your nature. But OCD makes, makes you think that you are. It makes you think that you have to be on guard all the time, right? Right. My brain is like, well, if, if you can think such a thing, you can do such a thing. If it's yep. your head, how do you, because you, you always saw these posters in high school, watch your thoughts, they become your words, watch your words, they become your actions. And I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm. well, thought, like mm-hmm. with this thought, how do I stifle it? So, yeah. Are you in counseling right now? I, well, I'm in a transitional phase where I was seeing a counselor that does not, um, she can't prescribe medication. Okay. And has been through the roof here lately, just um, with Josh being home now permanently. It's just anytime there's any transition, it can even be a good transition. So, you know, my husband was away doing flight school stuff. He's home now. When there's a big transition, my brain just is hyperactive more than it's already hyperactive. So I am actually in the process of trying to find someone who can obviously yeah. get, you know, the, the training that I can do without medication, but at the same time, I would probably like someone. I totally understand that. That was something that I had to do after I had my, my son in May was I, I had OCD that had amped up because of, like you said, huge life transition um, or huge life change. And also the fact that I had postpartum depression. So I, before I could do cognitive behavioral therapy or start taking these steps to expose myself right to the things that made me uncomfortable to retrain my brain, I had to actually get to a stable emotional place. And in order to do that, I had to be on medication. And I remember, and I've written a little bit about this already, but I remember the first night I took the medication, and I knew this was sort of a placebo effect. Um, It was Zoloft. And Zoloft does tend to to work really quickly, but I knew it it wasn't working immediately. But I just remember looking at my husband that night and going, my mind is quiet. Is this what it feels like to be you? And he just, I mean, I think he felt so much like sadness for me you know, because he didn't know what to do. He couldn't fix it. And I read an article recently about how some people, when they think they don't actually have an inner critic or like an inner voice that's talking, it's more like they think in abstract ideas and pictures. And then they have to sit and process before they can verbalize. (laughs) I thought there, what? There are people without a voice that's just constantly going, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. That must be nice. (laughs) Well, Josh is like that. Like he will, he'll tell me his thoughts are almost action based. It's just like point A to point B. Like I have to get up and brush Mm -hmm. and get ready for work. And he said like, that's as deep as my conversations get with myself. He's like, yeah, there's no monologue, like, you know, inner dialogue. And I thought, well, that must be nice. Cause mine, when I wake up is saying, Hey, good morning. You know? (laughs) Yes. Hello, we're here today. We're here and we have got 
you know, everywhere you look, we're going to find, we're going to find something. Yeah. I can't make it through a day. If I feel good, like as far as mentally at the end of the day, I will retrace my steps to make sure there's no way I miss where I did something wrong because it feels so normal to feel calm and Mm -hmm. safe. Yeah. I double check myself. See, and that, that was, it wasn't until after college and getting married that my OCD actually became something that interfered with my life because I had never had any sort of violent intrusive thoughts or scary intrusive thoughts. I was always really concerned about pleasing God and being a perfectionist. I actually attribute more of that to just being raised in a Southern evangelical culture that really put a lot of, of um, expectation on your performance, right. As a Christian, I don't, I don't really attribute so much of that to my OCD, but when I think about the, the kind of things that I would do, those little ticks and things that I would do growing up, that was OCD, but I didn't start struggling with thoughts that made me go, Oh my gosh, you know, that caused anxiety until after I was married. And so when I was in high school and growing up, I think the way that it showed up for me was that I would obsess about relationships. And if there was any conflict I could not let it go. And I would retrace it and retrace it and retrace it. And as soon as the conflict was over, I was totally fine, but I could not rest if there were, if there was conflict between me and another person. And I'm still, I still struggle with that a lot because this is, you know, we both share this being type ones on the Enneagram. We want to be seen as good, right? We care a lot about morality and about justice and about being good to people and our core fears that we're bad. So combine that with having this weird wonky system in our brain. It's just this double whammy. Yep. That's how I, I'm pretty sure I've said that verbatim is I'm mm-hmm. double because yeah. it's perfect. You want to be perfect, but every thought I feel like that flies through my head is imperfect. And so it's, it's tiring, you know, it's just tiring all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. It's exhausting. I, I'm in a place now where, you know, thankfully, thank God, God, I've written about this a lot in my book. Um, and I'm excited to share it, but I'm not depressed anymore, but sometimes I still feel just tired of life, right? Because your mind is working overtime constantly. And so even when things are good and things are good a lot, like I, I am very privileged and I'm very lucky. I have a really beautiful life and I have beautiful children and a marriage with a wonderful man. And I'm doing all of these things that I love and I have great friends and all of those things. But when you have a mental health struggle and when you have something in your mind that you can't get away from, it really affects you physically. It affects you and you just feel tired all of the time. And so I told my husband recently, I said, I am not suicidal by any means. But sometimes the thought of living another 35 or 40 years with my brain working overtime like this is just exhausting. And, and so I've been working a lot with my counselor. She said something to me the other day that just, oh, it was like, okay, just cut me to the quick. Get me right. Get me right where it hurts. But she was so right. She looked at me and she was like, you really want to be Jesus, don't you? And it was it was true. You know, she's, we were talking about just the way that I handle, um, relationships and wanting to help people and really carrying all that baggage with myself. And she said, nobody's asking you to do that. Nobody's asking you to be their savior. And so when my OCD tries to say to me, you have to get everything right all the time, you have to be perfect. 
you know, if you're not perfect, then you're going to just be a total monster, which is bullshit, right? right? Like there's, (laughs) you can mess up and still be a good human. Um, When it tries to say that to me, I just have to say, that's, that's not true. Life is lived in the gray. I don't have to be God. So I want to hear a little bit more about how your OCD has affected your faith or, you know, how it has impacted your view of God, if it has. Like I said, you know, growing up in a strict Baptist church, which I'm not denomination hating by any means, but it was nothing but rules. And so in my head, I made, it was, it was like I separated God and Jesus and the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit. Like, like there was, there was just God, how the Holy Spirit acts in the day to day and how Jesus was present in the New Testament as far as love and forgiveness. And it's not a rule book. Like I did not have that perception so that was that was tough though because you're you're a perfectionist so you want to please God but you also know deep down because the Sunday school answer is I'm not perfect. Yeah. So it, it was it was a it was awkward which sounds it was just awkward. I could not I felt like the God that they preached about and the God I read about in the Bible were two different things. Mm-hmm. So for about 4 or 5 years it was me wrestling with the idea of Creatures can be wrong, and I hate to just come out and lay it out like that, but sometimes people behind the pulpit are not correct. <laughs> um, um, well, yeah, because they're human uh, too. Right. So um, it was a lot of me realizing that just because I was brought up in that and just because the preacher behind the pulpit said God was X, Y, Z, these rules, you have to follow these rules. Like heaven or hell all the time. No forgiveness, no middle ground. I was scared. I was scared of God for four or five years. It was a lot of, there's no way I can be saved if I'm doing bad things because he is, he's just, and he's perfect. And it, you knew the Sunday school answer that Jesus is the perfection and he is the one standing there, you know, on your behalf in front of the father. But I just could not wrap my mind around that. So yeah. Jesus was, was just, I was like, yeah, sorry, that's not, there's no yeah. way that good. there's no way you work like that. It was very hard from about 13 to probably 18, 19 was incredibly difficult for me. Um, like I said, probably getting out from under that church in college is what broke some of that. Rigid, yeah. It's just my word for it. Just rigidness. I got involved in my own small groups and my own worship band. Like, you know, I, around people who were coming from different backgrounds with something outside yeah. the chains and skirts down to their ankles. But OCD is what really taught me who God is. And I told Josh a few weeks ago, I said, if the only point in my OCD is fully understanding who God is, I'm good with putting up with this for the rest of my life. That is, I'm good because for the first time in my life, I realized I am obsessed with random things, everything that flies through my brain. I'm obsessed with figuring it out and fixing it. But he is his obsession is just as raw and powerful, but it's obsessed with letting me know he's not going anywhere. So he's obsessed, but in a totally healthy way with me. And he's obsessed with not going anywhere, regardless of what it's almost now like a game. He's, you know, I think something terrible, or I think I've done something terrible. And, he, and it's almost like, he's like, try me and see if I'm going to go over uh, so, uh. so it's hard because OCD is hell. It's, I just, I wake up ready for hell. I go to bed praying. I don't wake up in the middle of the night to deal with it. But if it's learning that he's not going anywhere when I was brought up expecting him to leave when I did the simplest of things wrong, then, then I'll take that. So. 
That is so beautiful. I've said similar things like that, that if I had, if I had not dealt with OCD the way that I have in my twenties and thirties, then my marriage would be different. I would be raising my children um, in a very similar mindset as what I had to, you know, thinking that not only is it my responsibility to be moral and to be right and to be good, but it's my responsibility to make sure other people are doing that as well. And I'll be honest, that's something I still struggle with anyway. Um, That's a difficult thing for me to let go of because it's trying to walk a fine line of saying, you know, we do have this responsibility to, to other people in our life, right. To help carry each other's burdens, to be the body of Christ. But I am learning more and more as I get older that if I, if I want to be righteous, I have to trust in Jesus to give me that. I have to trust that because he has saved me, I am already righteous. I'm already holy. I don't have to do anything else. And when I try to do that, what am I doing? I'm just holding other people to an unrealistic standard that they can't possibly meet, that I can't possibly meet, right? That I'm always obsessing about trying to meet and saying, y'all need to do this. And, and what I've realized is that if I don't see the fruit of the spirit in my life, if I'm having a conversation with somebody and I'm feeling impatient and I'm feeling angry and I'm feeling frustrated and I'm wanting to fix it, that is not the fruit of the spirit. And so I need to tell that shit goodbye. Right. And, and I think that the combination of being a, a devout believer, somebody who has a really strong faith background and having OCD, it could have turned me into a really legalistic, dogmatic kind of parent. And so I, it has given me this much deeper compassion, I think, for other people because in the past it was always, you know, oh, just don't do that or just don't whatever. And now if somebody were to say to me, oh, just don't worry, just don't think about it. I just want to hold up my middle finger and say, fuck you. I can't just turn it off. I can't just turn it off. I can, however, go to counseling, take medication, take care of my body, get good sleep, and be open and honest about the fact that I have an illness. And it is a daily submission to God, to his lordship over me. It is a daily practice of exposing myself and showing my brain these obsessions don't mean anything. It's just the bully in your brain, right? And honestly, letting myself off the hook a little bit. And it's been, it has been really beautiful, I think. Like you said, being able to parent my child and have such, I think, deeper compassion and empathy for her than I would have if I didn't have OCD, if I hadn't learned what that was like by having an anxiety disorder. So how do you care for yourself whenever you are in between or when you're having really an intense episode of intrusive thoughts? Um, that's probably problem number one is I don't care for myself because I'm just in a state of panic. Mm-hmm. What I've learned with OCD is there's, if you just sit there and keep mulling it and thinking it over and trying to fix it, it just heightens. I, I mean, so it's, it's like spinning a wheel. It's not going to go anywhere. I have learned that I I have to talk it out sometimes. And my husband's yeah. great about that. If it's just a straight up panic attack, I have to let somebody know. I usually have to, I have to recluse. I will go to a quiet place 
and then I'll usually call my husband or my mom and just talk just to get it out. Because at the end of the day, I know it's OCD. Like I know what it is. I know it's not me. I have a hard time separating the two things is my problem. But if I can realize it and almost have someone reassure me, no, you're good. That's not you. Then I feel so much better. Now that's not always the healthiest thing. Like the goal is for me to understand that I'm good, you know, not to necessarily have to have someone tell me like yeah. trust that point is the goal but right now that's what I do is, is yeah. reassurance that's what I try to find is the reassurance yeah. you know me really well I have been trying to think to myself whenever an intrusive thought comes up into my head I have started to say the presence of the thought does not equal like the probability of that thought happening I'm sitting here right now I can imagine because I'm a human being with an imagination, I can imagine putting my car in drive and driving over to that person I see right over there. So I can imagine something all day long, anytime I want to, but that doesn't mean that the thought is suddenly more possible. And I think that that's what I've had to recognize is, oh, that thought came into my mind. I am still who I am. I am still Wendy. I still love my family. I'm still a good friend. I still love Jesus. I care about people deeply. And none of that has changed just because a thought came into my mind. And it's hard to walk the fine line of you don't want to reassure, 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 because that's a compulsion, you know, by fighting the thought, right? That's the worst thing we can do is try to fight it to make it go away. It's learning to just go, oh, there that is. Oh, but my default is still good. And I'm pulling a lot a lot of the stuff that I'm saying right now is stuff that I have learned from my counselor and and she's been really fantastic, but it's saying to myself, Oh, Wendy, you don't have to move your hand away. You know, you can just be comfortable with being with your husband or being with a friend. There's knives right there in the kitchen, right? Uh, There's there's a knife right next to you and you're not going to suddenly lose control and grab the knife and stab somebody that you love. Okay. The thought can go into your head and you can be like, Oh, Oh, that's my brain seeing something, a knife, a dangerous thing that could become a weapon that people have used as weapons and making a connection. Right. Oh, that's just my brain making a connection. Okay, moving on. Now I'm going to go do this other thing. Medication was the thing that helped me get to a good mental space where I could practice those things. And honestly, this is the hardest part is that you just have to do it. You just have to expose yourself to the thing that makes you uncomfortable. I have a trip coming up next month where I'm going to go record my audiobook. After I went to Kenya in 2011 and I was on the malaria medication that caused hallucination, suicidal ideation, insomnia, and all of these terrible things that I have since found out can, po- can cause permanent um, damage to your brain. Wish I would have known that then. Um, <laughs> That was when I started having those fears of like, what if I sleepwalk and do something terrible in my sleep? And so anytime I would travel, I would make my husband hide the knives. Like when we were in the UK a couple of years ago, when we'd be in an Airbnb, I would ask my husband to hide them so that I could sleep at night and not, that's why it's like, oh, I don't know where they are. I can't find them. Nothing bad will happen. And I told my counselor, I said, I'm going on a trip and I don't want to be dealing with that. I don't want to be thinking about that. And she said, I'm going to ask and encourage you to keep those knives, if they are around, visible, because you have to be able to go and confront and just do the normal thing and help your brain see that those are not a threat. It's just stuff like that, you know, having to constantly say to myself, what is popping up into my head 
is just my brain making a connection. It doesn't say anything about who I am. And it's constant practice. What do you think is most important for people without OCD to know about the disorder or if they have somebody that they know and they love and they want to help support them? What would you say to them? You know, you can't really tell someone with OCD, well, it's just a thought. Like the, the, the simple kind of fix it blurbs don't really work. So that's kind of my family didn't understand what was going on with me. Like it, it was not, oh, you know, Peyton has OCD. So the go to is Peyton, you're just worrying too much. Like you're OK. Yeah. Stop worrying. But that never fixed anything. And so I constantly felt like I was a shame or a disappointment because over and over they had to tell me, just just stop worrying. Just stop worrying. Mm -hmm. I think my thing is you can't fix someone with OCD per se. And so, you know, trying to give the little self-help one sentence tips doesn't really, that's just going to add shame. That's just going to weigh somebody down. It makes them just feel like they can't fix it. I think that people need to understand therapy is not a sign of weakness. Going and getting help is a sign of strength. And so say that, say that again. (laughs) If someone is, is interested, I, you know, just encourage them. There's nothing wrong with getting outside help because sometimes if you love someone with OCD, you're so in the middle of it that you can't be from the outside looking in and give them a fresh perspective. And sometimes you're afraid because of what flies through their head, they can't fool you fully tell you what's going on anyway because they of the fear they might hurt you or you might think poorly of them and so they need an outlet sometimes and sometimes yeah. you're the best person to be that outlet so as far as supporting just giving them the space and letting them know that you still see them as good and you still love them but letting them have the freedom to to find healthy outlets that might be outside of you no you know no pressure to yeah. keep it all behind closed doors and your four walls in your house. Sometimes you need to go and talk to somebody and that's more than okay. That's that's a strong thing. Yeah. I think too, asking somebody how you can help, how you can help them resist their compulsions without just throwing them into the deep end. Right. So that, that is something that my husband and I have dealt with a lot where he, he believes in my strength so much and believes in me. And I love that. But there have been times where I've said to him, I can't, I can't resist this right now. I can't resist the compulsion. And I just need you to let me do it this once. You know, it doesn't mean that I want you to just let me get away with it every time. But there are some times where I just don't have the mental or emotional capacity to try to resist the compulsion. I just need the anxiety to go away just for a minute. And obviously that's not healthy in the long term. That's not what we want to do. That just feeds the OCD. But there are going to be times where I think you, if you're, you know, whether you're married or they're your partner or they're your friend or your sister or whatever, where you're going to have to be able to get comfortable with having hard conversations with them. And sometimes you're going to have to say, I'm not going to enable you right now. And then there are going to be other times where you have to gauge, okay, how healthy are they in this moment? How capable are they in this moment? Okay, this might just be a time when they do the compulsion and then we just encourage them for the next time because that's another thing like you said is heaping the shame on top of them for needing to do the compulsion in that moment only makes it worse you're just gonna heighten the anxiety and then the compulsion is going to come regardless i did want to ask you about your book and i wanted to ask you about how your ocd if it has at all impacted you as a writer because i know that you're working on this really intense 
crime novel, which is so incredible. I just admire you so much for that. But has that impacted your writing at all? Um, yeah, so my protagonist in theory is me. She has OCD in the 1930s and nobody, nobody understands. In the 1930s, I did my research, um, when people had mental problems that obviously back then they didn't have the medication, nor did they have the knowledge to understand that, you know, someone with diabetes, there's an insulin problem with your pancreas, with Mm -hmm. OCD, problem with your brain. Like it's, it's not, you're crazy. There's, there's a problem with an organ in your body They they Mm -hmm. didn't what that was. They didn't know how to fix it. Um, they would shackle people to walls and pretty much put them in cellars. And that's how they took people with mental health problems. Um, so I gave my protagonist OCD and throughout the story, you see compulsions, you see panic, you see inner dialogue because she's faced with, I mean, it's a crime novel. She's right in the middle of some seriously heightened things that, you know, people would worry about even if they didn't have OCD. Um, so it's been very refreshing to give a protagonist like a woman in the 1930s to give her the, um, I guess the, the bravery to, I mean, not the bravery to have mental health problems because she didn't ask for them like they came, but the bravery to still be a woman to step up for what is right and to still force herself in some ways to, to function and to come out on top of that. The whole mm-hmm. time pursuing what is good, but I also wanted to give her the chance to love people and to mess up while loving other people and finally come to grips with that being okay. So it's, it's, I mean, I call it the book disorder. It's messy. I love crafting stories. The creativity almost distracts my brain, Mm -hmm. but almost it it attacks my brain. So that's the interesting. That's tough, but I love that you have been, intentional about about giving your protagonist a mental health disorder in a time when that was really not understood or treated right Right. and she's facing things that are going to trigger her intrusive (laughs) thoughts crime I can't imagine anything worse for me you know and that's that's something that my counselor and I have talked about a lot as she said you know the things that are are triggers for you because I've said to her God, if I could just have any other type of OCD, right? If it just wouldn't manifest itself this way. And she has said, she said, yeah, because for you, that's the worst thing imaginable, right? The worst thing imaginable is that somebody would harm the people that you love or that you would harm the people that you love. But for somebody else, it's something different. And every person says, oh, if I could just have a different type, because for every person, it's what bothers them the most. And so I am really excited to read your book and to see what that's like for her to be in these highly triggering situations and have, you know, access to her inner dialogue and also to see how that can benefit her work. Cause she's a detective, right? She's, um, she's actually a crime reporter. Oh, okay. That's right. That's right. She's a crime reporter. And it's not really like a spoiler, but in the first paragraph, you find out she's killed somebody. Like you just know straight up it's, mm-hmm. it's there, but you're a crime reporter and you're about to have to report your own crime, but you think what you did is justifiable. You think, but maybe not because you have OCD and you obviously <laughs> you murdered one that's bad but, Gosh. But for X, Y, and Z. And so it's just, I've wanted to put that heightened panic up front. And so the whole mm-hmm. rest of the book is just her trying to, how do you process that with OCD? You, oh my <laughs> gosh, that is going to be intense. <laughs> So I have a question. Does that mean, so I generally try to 
sometimes this can be a compulsion if I'm doing it too intensely, but I do try to be very thoughtful about what kind of media I consume. Right. So I'm, I'm careful about not watching things that are too violent or too graphic because I know they're going to stick with me. They're going to upset me for days. So is this the kind of book that I would be able to read with having that kind of manifestation of my OCD? Okay. Okay. So for sure, just because I'm, I'm the same kind of person. And I wouldn't want to put that in front of, like, my husband's playing a video game right now that to him is nothing, but it's it's dragons and sorcery and, like, I'm total Harry oh Potter fan. Oh, my gosh. Like, my husband does the same thing. But, th- but this is, like, creepy, apocalyptic, mm-hmm. something you read out of And when he's playing that video game, I can't sit in there. because Because those images will fly through my head, and what if I like those, and what? why am I watching this? So if he's playing that video game, I got to go. I can't yep. do it. I go in the bedroom and I turn on Queer Eye or I turn on Downton Abbey or, you know, I mean, God, there's been stuff in Downton Abbey, Abbey too, though, that was like, I don't want to watch this. Um, but some kind of period drama and with an E, something that makes me feel really happy. And I think a lot of that, too, is I don't want to ever encourage people to um, to hide away. But I do think that we have to be mindful of the stuff that triggers us. And say, it's okay for me to not be around that. That's different than, that's different than just saying, oh yeah, just do your compulsions. I think saying, this is what's healthy for me to, to help keep my mind healthy. And I'm going to do that. So I'm going to practice, right, muting certain things on Twitter so that I don't have headlines that pop up that disturb me, that upset me. Because I don't need, I don't need to see those things to know that stuff is happening in the world. It is, it does sort of go back to this idea of like keeping your thoughts as pure as you possibly can, thinking on things that are good and healthy. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to have to engage with hard stuff or that we should hide away from hard stuff, but it's, it's trying to keep our mental space in a way that where we can, we can address those things in a healthy way rather than having them cripple us when they, when we have to confront them. Right. I think that's just been something I've been trying to practice and I'm looking forward to reading your book because I think that reading that is going to make me feel strong, right? It's going to make me go, hell yeah, you know, she's this strong woman who's still dealing with hard things, just like us. Every day. All right, guys, that's it for this episode of the So OCD podcast. Didn't you just love Peyton? She is amazing. If you want to follow her and keep up with her work, I'll have all the information for her social and her website in the show notes. Thanks again for being here and we'll see you guys next time.